Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Welcome to church. Happy New Year's. So I shared with a few people that I was preaching this weekend, and I got the same response multiple times. What, are you trying to be Tim Ryan or something? Huh? It's New Year's. Thought we were going to bring Tim Ryan back. And so the best I can do is dedicate this message to Tim Ryan. So uh, pull out your Bibles, open them to Jonah. We're going to, I'm just kidding. Oh, I joke, I kid. It was an awesome series. Um, no, but I'm glad that we remember Tim that way. Is it still really loud? Yeah. In my, it's like I'm talking in my ear. It's weird. All right. Well, we'll let the sound guys figure that out. And as I continue, I just want to say I'm so honored to be able to be up here and share with you guys. It really is a joy to be able to uh, prepare a sermon and share with you what's on my heart, what I feel like the Lord is speaking. And so today I want to talk to you about the heart of prayer. That's going to be, uh, we're going to do a little mini-series. I'm going to do part one, and then Pastor Stefan is going to do part two on prayer, the heart of prayer. And so today I'm going to open it up by going to Matthew chapter 6, a part of the Bible that I've been really excited about and, and waiting for an opportunity, honestly, just to be able to speak about it. And we're going to talk about the heart of prayer. But first, I just want to say that it's been a privilege of mine for the last 10 plus years to grow up here, spiritually speaking, at this church. I'm so grateful for the way that God has used this church, Southland, to enrich my life, to teach me, to help me to mature in Christ. And one of the things that I'm very grateful for, amongst many, you know, I think of the retreats, the materials, the practices, and many, many of you that have blessed my life. I think something, though, in particular that I've really appreciated about my time here at this church has been that we have consistently heard about, taught on the biblical importance of prayer, but not only that, it's been modeled to us and it's been shared to us with stories. And so I was reminiscing a little bit. I remember my first prayer summit that I ever came to. I remember, do I have to go to this thing? And the person who was discipling me at the time said, yes, corporate prayer is really important. I'm like, it's going to be weird. So I came into, it was the old auditorium, a bunch of strangers, a room full of strangers just worshiping, and I felt very nervous, very uncomfortable, but that only lasted for a few minutes because I was overwhelmed by the welcoming people that took me in and they were willing to pray with me and to pray for me. Or I remember the first small group that my wife and I joined. Ellie and I, we were the couple that reeked of cigarettes and our, our life was just a mess. That's when we came into our faith. That's where Jesus found us. But we were brought into this small group and we were taught how to share requests with one another, how to pray with and to pray for other people, how to listen in prayer and encourage one another. Just to rattle off a few more, there's the Hearing God Seminar. There's my time in SOM, being taught how to journal my prayers. All of these things have made a huge impact, but I think one of the biggest things that's made an impact on my life was the personal examples, the personal stories that were weaved into all of those materials and all of those sermons. You know, stories, for example, like, and this isn't my story, but leaving a beloved flying career to say yes to Jesus. 
starting a church in Woodstock, which at first I was really sad to discover had nothing to do with Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> Returning to Steinbach to help the church, then introducing the Holy Spirit to the church, praying on the rock and saying, Lord, but what if they kick me out for this? What's that to you? was the response. See, these aren't my stories, but they were some of the stories that I heard as I matured in my faith, and they became a part of the fabric of my story, of our story here at this church. And the thing that I love most is that we weren't taught to elevate or idolize those stories, but we were taught to imitate them, to work prayer into our lives and to copy it because what the Bible says about prayer, that it can move mountains, it's true. And so I am so grateful to be a part of this church, and I'm so grateful to walk alongside of you, my brothers and sisters in this church. Today I wanna to talk about the heart of prayer, and it's January, which means that we're entering into the month of prayer and fasting, and in a few weeks, or in the next few weeks, we're going to put added emphasis on these two important spiritual practices, prayer and fasting. So, today we're going to focus on Matthew chapter six. So if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, you can open up to Matthew six, and we're gonna look at verses five to 13. I'm gonna read this passage of scripture to us, and then we're just gonna break it down a little bit and ask the Lord to speak to us. Matthew chapter six, verse five. And when you pray, Oh, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you modeled prayer. As we look into the gospels and we see your life, we see that it was a life centered on prayer. But thank you, Jesus, that you didn't just model it, you also taught us how to pray. And I pray this morning as we focus our attention on this passage, Holy Spirit, would you do this supernatural? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see what it is that you're saying, what it is you want us to do? We don't want to leave any of the blessing from this passage left behind on the table. We want to take it all home with us. We want to chew on this passage in the weeks to come. We love you. Amen. All right. So I will fly through some of this if I'm talking really fast. I do apologize, but I've got a lot. I tried to condense it, but it was a challenge for some reason, this time especially. But here's the big point this morning. The big point is this, that Jesus assumes that his disciples will establish and grow their life in prayer. 
This is not a have to, this is a get to. And Jesus is inviting you and he's inviting me back into the secret place, a place of limitless joy, strength, hope, and wisdom. I believe that this short little passage on prayer in Matthew 6 provides us one of the clearest overviews for prayer communion with God, that is, in the life of a disciple. So I'd like to suggest, and this is just my take on it, that there are four simple qualities of prayer outlined in this passage. It might be a little bit cheesy if you're not into the, hey, all four of those things start with W, you'll have to forgive me, but maybe it'll help some of you to remember them. But I found four qualities of prayer outlined in this passage. First, I have when we pray, because the assumption is that we will pray. And then secondly, there's why we pray. And there's Jesus is going to challenge some motives that he perceives we will face, challenges that we will face. Then there's where we will pray, which is the invitation to the secret place. And then finally, what we will pray, the wisdom and the heart posture of what our prayers should be like. And so with that in mind, let's start with when you pray. Let's learn from Jesus this morning. To be a disciple or a follower or an apprentice or a student of Jesus, whatever you would term you would use, to be a follower of Jesus will include a life of prayer. Jesus assumes that you and I will embrace that kind of lifestyle. This isn't optional. It's not just for introverts. It's not just for certain personality types that are bent on quiet reflection. No, this is a discipline that Jesus is inviting all of us into. Prayer is essential for all disciples. And if you're looking for a definition, here's what I wrote down. Prayer can be simply defined as the act of communicating with God or communion with God, having unity with God. Communion with God, which involves both speaking to and listening to God, as well as just time spent in His presence, time in adoration, time in worship, time in reflection. Prayer is where we commune with God. Jesus is going to give some correction on prayer. He's going to give some critiques here on prayer in this passage. But notice here that Jesus, while he is critiquing some of the ways in which people pray, he never once diminishes prayer. He never once says, yeah, this whole prayer thing, it's an issue. Get rid of it. No. No, he says that there are issues that we will face when praying, but he never diminishes it. In fact, it's the opposite. Jesus elevates prayer. Jesus himself loved prayer. He lived a prayer-centered life. And, you know, Jesus actually appreciated many of the practices that the religious leaders held. Practices such as prayer, fasting, worship, giving. Go back and read Matthew chapter 6. Notice the topics that he is addressing. He's not diminishing them. He's giving us his proper perspective, and many of those practices are what the Pharisees, what the religious leaders would practice. You see, there's a, uh, from an external viewpoint, Jesus' lifestyle actually mirrored the religious leaders in many ways, from an external vantage point, in regard to his lifestyle, his practices, the way that he lived. And remember, we learn from the lifestyle of Jesus, as well as from the teachings of Jesus. They go, in, uh, they go in perfect unity, but his lifestyle is something that we learn from. 
See, there's a false assumption among many Christians that adherence to disciplines or forming spiritual habits in our life is bad. There's this misconception that anything that is structured, that must be legalistic and that must be religious. As Christians, we're not supposed to be legalistic, so I guess we shouldn't have anything to do with these disciplines like the Pharisees. And that is not so. That is not what Jesus teaches. I want to give you just a quick example. How about scripture reading? We know as believers, or I think we should know as believers, the importance of daily time in God's Word, or regular time in God's Word, right? That's where we go to get God's heart. That's where we go to find truth. It's the foundation of our life. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they loved God's Word, and Jesus loved God's Word. Notice Jesus' interaction with them in John 5. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because in them you think you have eternal life. So here we go again. I guess Jesus isn't about Bible reading. Just like he's not about prayer. He's not about Bible reading. No, that's completely missing the point. Again, it's a motive thing. He says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, they practiced these disciplines, but they failed. They had the wrong motives in doing so. Jesus isn't against the discipline. He's against the, the poor motives, the false motives. Spiritual practices, such as prayer, are good, and they help us to become like Jesus. They help us to grow and mature, but they must be submitted to his lordship, to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and we must know that they don't earn us salvation. We're not saved because of our works, but because we are saved, we make every effort to add to our life, right? So, consider how the passage starts, because we're looking at, and when you pray. How does the passage start, and when you pray? Jesus expects it. It's just an assumption right in the beginning of this passage that we will pray, because prayer is one of the chief ways that an apprentice of Jesus is going to become more like him. We hardly need to defend that Jesus had an extraordinary prayer life, but because of the importance of this topic, I think we should just quickly peruse a little bit in the Gospels, how did Jesus' prayer life look? Is it, is it emphasized a lot? And I would say, yes. Jesus' prayer life is emphasized over and over and over again in the Gospels. I'm just gonna give you a quick list. Um, I suggest if you're a note taker, don't tr you're going you're gonna to hurt your fingers. That's going to be bad to try to catch all those words. But just snap a picture of this list that's going to come up. Here is some, a sampling of Jesus praying in the Gospels. You got Matthew chapter 6, 9 to 13, the passage we're looking at. Luke 3, 21, that's his baptism. Luke 4, 20, 4, 42, that's Jesus when he was doing miracles at Capernaum. Everyone's going crazy. Where is Jesus? He slipped away into the wilderness to pray. Mark 1.35, Luke 5.16, Jesus would often slip away into the wilderness to pray. Luke 6.12, Luke 9.29, I think you get the point. It's all over the place in the Gospels. Jesus centered his life around prayer. John 5.19 says, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. That's what Jesus taught. What he's saying there is his life revolved around this practice of going to the Father in prayer. He only, sees what the he only does what he sees the Father doing. Where did he see the Father? When he was in the secret room. 
when he was with his father in prayer. So Jesus' life revolved around this discipline of prayer. Luke 6.40 says this, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. And I love Dallas Willard says this, we do not try to be like Jesus, we train to be like Jesus. An aimless, formless, lackluster way of, oh, I'm, you know, I'm gonna try to be like Jesus today will bear very little fruit. Because we don't just simply try to be like the Son of God. We train to be like Him. And we participate in what the Holy Spirit is doing to become like Him. So, Jesus did not say, if you pray, He said, when you pray. There, that's the introduction. Now, on to why you pray. Jesus also addresses why we pray. And He says this, now, I don't think it takes long for us to establish the, that prayer is important, by the way. Most Christians would agree on that point. Jesus doesn't leave it there, though, and nor should we. The goal today is not just simply to make a case from the Bible that we ought to pray, because I think a lot of us came in here and we knew that already, that we ought to pray. The point today is rather how do we move forward in establishing and growing our prayer life? especially as we approach the month of prayer and fasting. How do we as believers grow in our life of prayer? It's for this reason that we need to look a little bit further at our motives. In our passage, Jesus presents two false motives that we will face in prayer. The first motive is to be seen by others, and the second is to treat prayer as a way to get what we want from God. Almost as by using our words or the quality of our words or the elegance of our words to twist God's arm and give us what we want. Those are the two motives, so let's look at them a little bit closely. Motive number one, to be seen by others. Jesus says this, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Very truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Interesting that Jesus actually says they will have a reward, but their reward is fleeting. It's for the acknowledgement and the praise of man. They're praying, they're building this prayer life for what others will think of them. I don't know if you've ever gotten the honor at a family gathering of being asked to pray, but you know the heart starts racing. It's in the big leagues now. I'm going to lay a prayer out, and hey, that's not bad. Use that opportunity for good. But if our only motive is so that others will think, wow, that prayer really sounded good. That was polished. Do you really take that and just, does that fuel you in your walk with God for a long time? No. We all know that that reward is fleeting. Just about as quickly as it felt good for a second, it disappears into, ah, I need to find something else to make me feel good now. But when we pray in the secret, we get a reward that will never fade, that can never be taken away. See, the nature of prayer is to see God and to be seen by God. That's the nature of prayer. Prayer is dead when we make it about ourselves. Well, motive number two that Jesus points out is the poor motive of praying to get what we want out of God, and to do that by almost viewing our words as a manipulation of sorts. Jesus says, when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans, 
for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. To be sure, Jesus did teach at times on the, on the value and the importance of persistent prayer. Think of Luke 18, where he teaches the parable of the persistent widow. Or in, you know, just a chapter later in Matthew 7, where he teaches the principle of ask, seek, knock. Jesus isn't against uh, praying something for a long time. I love, actually, something Pastor Stefan said at the prayer summit last night. Some of our prayers need to get longevity in them. That's a good word. Our prayers need to get longevity. So Jesus isn't against praying something for a long time, but he is now, the motivation is revealed in this warning that we should not approach prayer to get what we want out of God. Whether that's by the length or the substance of our words, trying to manipulate God. First of all, as Jesus points out, God already knows and already cares for our needs. Just let that sink in for a second. Before you even ask God, think of some of those moments in life where the only thing you know how to do is to go to God and say, help. Before you even ask, your Father knows your needs and cares for you. So Jesus says you don't need to convince, you don't need to heap up your words and make it sound polished and pretty. He already knows. And then secondly, Prayer is about learning what God wants and what God wills for your life and allowing him to transform our desires to be in line with that. As in, prayer isn't about getting what we want. Prayer is about learning what God wants and then asking him to help us to want that too. I love how Richard Foster says it in a celebration of discipline. He says, in prayer, real prayer, we begin to think God's thoughts after him and to desire the things that he desires, to love the things that he loves, to will the things that he wills. And remember, prayer is a get-to. Jesus inviting us into the secret room to grow in our prayer life, this isn't the oh, I have to do it, you're telling me now, this is something that I've got to work up. I've got to get better at prayer so that God will love me more. No, it's exactly the opposite. Prayer is a get-to. Jesus is inviting you and he's inviting me into the most intimate relationship known to man, a relationship with the Father in prayer, a place of limitless joy, strength, courage, and wisdom. Prayer is just the best. And so I thought maybe it would be helpful if I shared some personal stories on prayer, just to solidify that this isn't a have to. This is a wonderful thing that God is inviting us into. Do you want to hear a story? Yes? Okay, cool. You don't really have much of a choice anyway, but um, I wish I could talk about George Mueller. I read an amazing biography over the Christmas break, Christian Heroes Then and Now. I pump up this book series all the time, especially to our high school and young adults, um, because these books are so easy to read. It's, it's not even funny. They're just amazing. They're so engaging, and I can read a book in like four days, and I'm not a very good reader, okay? So I read one of those biographies, and George Mueller's life, just incredible, the way that God used him and how he grew in a prayer life. Oh, it's amazing, but I'm going to just share a story from my life, and I'll just point you to reading George Mueller's, which is way cooler. Go and read him, but I want to share with you just a quick story about prayer and how this is an amazing opportunity. You see, before I came into ministry, 
Uh, and I've, I'm going, this is my fifth year now. I'm going, approaching my fifth year, sorry, of being here at church as in paid ministry. But before I got here, and a little bit at the start, I was working half-time, I was doing renovations. And, you know, I was doing school of ministers, and year three was now three days a week in school, leaving me only two days a week to work. And so it just didn't make sense anymore for me to work for my former boss, who was awesome. So I decided, it was a really scary move, but I decided that I would go out on my own with the things that I had learned, and learned from him, and, and I would do some renovations. Now, just to paint a picture of how modest this whole operation was, I ran it out of a 98 Honda Civic, okay? And I did successfully get 16-foot uh, material lumber into that Honda Civic. It is incredible what those things can do. But doing this renovation uh, left me with starting with nothing. I had nothing. I had no, none of the tools that I needed. But yet I had a family that I needed to provide for, a home, mouths to feed. There's this responsibility. And I knew that Jesus was calling me to ministry. But in the meantime, I needed to just provide for my family. So I went out on my own, and the job started coming in. Okay, that's half of the equation. Thank you, Jesus. I've got these jobs, these opportunities for me to make some money. So I start this one job, and as I'm working, it starts to dawn on me. I, like, I've already ripped down walls. <laughs> I'm ripping drywall off, and then it's like, I don't have any of the tools to finish this job. Okay? <laughs> You're like, that's really irresponsible. I know, ready, fire, aim. That's just kind of how I roll. So... I start really feeling this weight of, God, I've got to get this job done. I've got to provide for my family. What are you, Jesus, how am I going to do this? I don't have the tools that it takes to finish this renovation. And so I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm asking God, what do I do because I don't have the money to buy the tools because I could borrow them. And one day I'm driving to the job site and I just felt the Holy Spirit just urge me to pray. And I'd prayed about it already, but I said, okay. It was a short, simple prayer out loud in my Honda Civic. I said, Jesus, I really need the tools to work because I'm going to need them like tomorrow. And it was like all of a sudden in the moment, I just knew that he had heard me. No one else in the vehicle, but I knew that somebody heard that request. But nothing changed. I drove to work started doing the last little bit of the job that I could with the tools that I had, and then I get a phone call. And it's my sweet gran. And she says, hi, I would love to have you over for lunch today. Would you like to come and visit with me and granddad? And I thought, I didn't have a lunch today either. This is awesome. Jesus is providing. So I say, sure, I'd love to come over for lunch today. So I head over there around noon, and I'm visiting with my grandparents in the sunroom as my gran is preparing the lunch. It's just me and my granddad, and he's asking me about how's work going, like how he was very curious about how this whole renovation thing was going to work. And then he said something to me right before we went in to eat. He said, hey, I just want to know, I want you to know I'm really proud of you for what you're doing. So I cleaned out the shed the other day, and I left a whole, whole bunch of tools in the garage for you in the front. I want you to take those when you go home. The specific things that I needed a compressor, a hose, like specific tools that I needed to do the job were waiting for me in the garage. And then he said, oh, and I don't know if that's going to be enough for you, so here's a check. I want you to go and buy any tools that you need. I tell you, it's moments 
when things get tough, where I go, God, how are you going to pull through in this moment? I think back to that story, and I know that before I even uttered those words, Lord, I need the tools, there was a Father in heaven that already knew. The things that you have in your life that you need, he already knows, and he wants to provide for you. Sometimes it doesn't look like getting exactly what you need, but we do have a God that knows and cares. He sees our heart, and so... Let's, let's go now to where we pray. Oh, the point there, by the way, was that this isn't, you see how this isn't a have to? This is a get to. This is an invitation from our loving Father. But now, where to pray? Recently, I was listening to a conversation that two pastors were having in a podcast about prayer. And one of them made a very passing comment, had the, the, the overall theme of this podcast didn't have to do with Matthew chapter 6, but one of them made a passing comment about Matthew chapter 6 that just piqued my interest because I've been thinking about this passage for some time already. It was John Mark Comer who made this observation. He said, before Jesus teaches us what to pray, he teaches us where to pray. And I thought, man, that is a very interesting thought. I've never considered the venue being of importance. I've never really thought about the order of this passage. But look, in Matthew chapter 6, it's very interesting. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Keep in mind that this is before we get to the Lord's prayer portion where Jesus will outline how his disciples will pray. As in, the where comes before the what. And I had never considered the importance of that. Further studying of this concept of the secret room revealed a little bit to me that the space that Jesus is speaking about is likely the innermost room of a house. According to one commentator, the room is most likely windowless because it's in the center of the house. And it's possibly going to be one of the only rooms to have a locking door. Which I think that that is really interesting. See, Jesus is, it's more than about being unseen when you pray. It's also about being uninterrupted when you pray. The idea isn't that prayer must be done in secret as if praying in public or in front of others is wrong. Rather, Jesus is inviting us to imitate, uh, to intimate prayer with our Father. And likewise, Jesus doesn't mean that we have to have a literal room that we pray in, but that we have space, that we have time in our lives and opportunity to have regular alone time with our Father. You see, what I found interesting is that Luke also records Jesus praying the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is, is presented in Luke this way. It says, it's much different than in Matthew. In Luke 11, 1 to 2, it says this. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And when you pray, say, and then he leads them in the Lord's Prayer. That's Luke chapter 11. So I want you to notice here that Luke doesn't include the teachings about the secret room before recording the Lord's Prayer. But he does include Jesus' practice of the secret room in his telling. You see, there's caught and then there's taught ways of learning. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is going to teach us about the power of the secret room. 
He's going to instruct us when you pray. It doesn't have to be in front of others, this big show. It can be an intimate thing between you and your father. But in Luke, it is a caught wisdom. We observe that Jesus in a certain place was praying. You see, Jesus' prayer life inspired the disciples to ask, can you please teach us how to pray? They admired the prayer life that Jesus had, and they saw his regular practice of the secret place with God. And so they asked, please teach us how to pray. So why would this be so? I want you to think about it like this. How many couples do we have here this morning? Okay, dating couples? Okay, if you're, hopefully you know to raise your hand if you are dating. I hope you know that you're in a relationship. That's a good start. Okay, how many engaged couples this morning? You should really know. Okay, I don't see any hands. Okay, how many married couples are here this morning? Okay, awesome. How many people would love to be in a couple this morning? Just kidding. <laughs> we'll leave that there. Every couple knows the value of quality time together, right? A couple... Uh, as a couple, it's very important that you create time and space for you to connect, to have fun together, to eat good food together. We all know that the space that we spend time in will have an impact on the kind of connection that we have with one another. So if it's a very loud, busy, hustle and bustle type of environment, it won't naturally lend to having a nice conversation. Or it'll be difficult to have a, loud, a nice conversation, right? However, we also know when we pick where we're going to go for a date, we're going to pick some place, we're going to pick a venue that is going to lend well to conversation, to be able to share, to be able to hear one another, to laugh. You know, for example, like Costco, great place to go on a date. <laughs> Just kidding. But that is where my wife and I go for dates because, well, it doesn't have a nice environment. It does have poutine and very cheap poutine. And that also helps for dates. But the point is, we understand that location matters when we're trying to build relationships. So we will pick a venue that will lend to the kind of connection that we want to have. If we want to have an intimate conversation with someone, we will naturally choose a quieter place to meet. So that is, too, with, the prayer, with our prayer lives. Jesus is inviting us into the type of lifestyle that would contain intimate prayer with our Father. He's inviting us to have a lifestyle that includes time and space to be able to connect with our Father in prayer. So you might be wondering, is the secret room literal or is it figurative? Is it a spiritual thing? I would suggest actually both. I see value in having a physical space that we regularly meet with God. As in, for you, if you've made a habit of, I spent my time with Jesus at the coffee, or uh, having coffee at the kitchen table, or in the chair in the living room, or as Susanna Wesley did, she would put her apron up so that the kids would know, when mom has the apron up, don't mess with her. She's in the secret place with God. I think that having a physical place, as well as boundaries that guard this time, such as slowing down our life, getting to bed uh, on time, and turning off our phone to eliminate distractions. These are all ways that we have a literal, quiet space to meet with Jesus. But on the flip side, the beautiful thing is that the secret place, that principle travels with us wherever we go. You can be in the middle of the most chaotic situation, 
And you can hear the gentle whisper of your father in your heart and know that there is an internal place that you can dwell, a safety, a refuge that you can go to, the inner room of your heart, right? I think for me often, people have asked me like, so you preach, like, do you just love it? Do you never get nervous? Here's the truth. I get nervous every time. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. I get nervous every time. And every time without fail that I have spoken, I have one interaction with Jesus in worship. And that is, Lord, would you please go with me? To which he responds every time, I will be with you. Every time I preached, from the very first time that I spoke at a Bible quiz memory club in Morris Church to a bunch of junior high students, and my knees were shaking so loud, I think that I didn't have to clap for worship. They were just clapping for me. I was so nervous. And I remember as I walked up to that stage, my notes in my hand just, oh, Lord, like a life, like a life vessel, like, don't forsake me. And he said, I will be with you. And he says the same thing to me every time. See, the secret place is also a reality within that can be carried wherever you are, whatever you are facing. That is where you should pray. Now, lastly, what you should pray. We've covered so far when you should pray because there's the assumption that we will. We've looked at why you should pray because there's perceived challenges that we will face. There's false motives for prayer. Then there's where we should pray, which is an invitation into the secret place. And now we're going to look at what we should pray. Many people, including those in my generation, grew up reciting the words of the Lord's Prayer at the start of their school day. I remember that as a kid. I didn't, I didn't really pay much attention to it. I learned how to memorize it. Um, but I remember reciting it at the beginning of our school day. So I thought it would be kind of fun if I put it up on the screen. And just for fun, do you guys want to recite it with me? Well, recite it out of the NIV, not the classic school rendition of it. But let's read this together. These are amazing words. And this is where I want to end our sermon. I want to focus on this amazing prayer and how I believe it can be a target for us in our prayer life. So let's read it together then. Is it up on the screen? All right, three, two, one. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's the Lord's Prayer. When the disciples asked Jesus, how do we pray? And I hope that we ask Jesus, how do we pray? Teach us how to do this. This was his response. So here are a final couple of observations. First, Jesus actually said this is how you should pray, not what you should pray. So I guess that means that my section heading is a little bit deceiving, but... That's okay, just bear with me and know that Jesus actually said this is how you should pray because there's significance in that wording. The reason why it's important that Jesus said this is how you should pray is because he was not intending this prayer to become a formula to us. He said then this is how you should pray. This is how you should approach prayer. We almost would like it if the lines from the Lord's Prayer were a magic bullet for all of life's problems, wouldn't we? 
just a simple incantation in the morning to ward away any bad foes out there that were coming to get us. We could just say the words and everything would be better. Well, how did that work out in the schools? We said it there every morning, and things have gotten a lot darker over the years. It's simple to me that this isn't an incantation. This isn't Jesus giving us some sort of spiritual spell to pray. What Jesus is doing is he is offering us a guide. This written prayer is not rigid, as in it's not meant to dictate the specifics of what we pray every day. Perhaps you have an, you have an important decision to make, a career change, or you've got a challenge in your marriage or a child and, that you're parenting, and you need God's wisdom on that. Well, that isn't specifically outlined in the prayer, so does that mean then, well, sorry, that can't be in your prayer life. No, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Of course we can pray about those things. See, the heart behind the Lord's Prayer is, think of it as a beautiful outline or a guide for how to approach God in prayer. And as I'd like to show you, this prayer actually follows the outline of the great command that Jesus gave us to love God and to love people. Think of those basic nutrients guides that you, uh, for me it was on my friend's uh, door in, in his kitchen, there was one of those old nutrients guides. It was like rainbow colored, and it had like pictures of bread and, and like a fish on it, right? Remember that? So there's the basic nutrients that we need. You've got your protein, you've got your fiber, calcium, iron, vitamins, poutine, all those kind of good things that are essential nutrients that we would cease to exist if we didn't eat them. So take, for example, protein. We know that we need protein, but there are different ways that we can get that nutrients. See, the best way to get it is through a burger, but you could also get protein through nuts or maybe beans of some sort. You could get protein many ways, and in the same way, the Lord's Prayer is a balanced outline for how a healthy prayer life should function. We see worship, we see adoration, we see intercession, supplication, surrender, deliverance, all of this beautifully outlined and crafted into a precious prayer prayed by Jesus. So I really don't think we're going to have time to get through all of this, and that is just fine. Because Pastor Stephen's going to come and finish it up next week. Awesome. I actually don't know what you're going to say, but... <laughs> I would like to suggest that there are two sections each section containing three lines within this prayer, as recorded in Matthew. It is a little bit different in Luke, but today we're focusing on the passage in Matthew. Part one, the first section grounds the prayer on God the Father. That's its point. It, we are supposed to see God. Remember, the essence of prayer is to see God and to be seen by God. That is what it looks like to commune with Him. So the first section grounds the prayer on God the Father, starting with hallowed be your name. A bit of a strange word there. We don't use hallowed very often, except when we're praying the Lord's Prayer, I think. But the meaning there, the emphasis behind hallowed be your name is for God's name to be acknowledged as holy. You know, I've been thinking about this every time I'm in a with a group of people, whether it's here this morning or I was at Superstore the other day. I've been just thinking about this as I've been preparing my sermon. For hallowed be thy name to become a reality. When I'm around people, I long for people to acknowledge and recognize God as holy. Not in a way of like, ha, 
made you admit it, but in a way of, oh, that you would see the Father's love for you. Oh, that you would know that the weight that you carry, he wants to lift, that he loves you, that he laid down his life for you. That is the essence of hallowed be your name. R.T. France says this, hallowed be thy name is asking for more than reverent speech. Hallow means make holy or better yet to treat as holy with reverence. This clause may be, thus express a desire to see God truly honored as the God in the world today and a longing for the day when all men will acknowledge God as Lord. Because a day is coming when every knee will bow, when every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But to carry around the hallowed be thy name heart within us as we pray is for here and now, in our own lives to acknowledge that God is holy in every moment when my eyes fall off the prize, when the troubles in my life seem to get bigger than the God that I follow. Hallowed be your name. May I recognize you as holy. May I acknowledge who you are, Lord, and why you are so worth following. And then to also have that longing for each and every person that I interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. See, this line, it's not here. Jesus didn't include it because God had a little bit of an insecurity, like, hey, Jesus, do you mind telling them every time that they pray that they start with saying that I'm holy? Just because I, I want them to acknowledge that. God is holy, and just who he is demands that. But he isn't insecure. This prayer, this doesn't start with hallowed be thy name for God's benefit, although God deserves to be praised. He deserves to have all the glory but it starts for our benefit that we might acknowledge who God is, that we might acknowledge who we pray to. We pray to a holy God. Well, then there's your kingdom come. This again acknowledges who God is, that he is king. He has come to establish his kingdom, and one day he will bring that kingdom to completion in a physical reality when he sets up his throne and rules forever in the city of the great king in Jerusalem. Jesus is a king, and his kingdom will come. But as we wait, we pray, Lord, may your kingdom come. May every day my life reflect just a little bit more the reality that there is a God in heaven, and he is king of my life. That is your kingdom come. And then lastly, the natural response, your will be done. In light of who God is, the natural response should be submission. This is why it's important that we start the Lord's Prayer here. If the goal of prayer is transformation, meaning prayer changes our hearts and aligns us with God's will, then a big part of how he's going to do that is by having us recognize who it is that we are speaking to. So then there's the second part, and I'm just going to very quickly breeze through this. The second part of the Lord's Prayer is the last three lines. The second section focuses on our needs and recognizes God as our provider. Give us today our daily bread. God is our provider. It draws our attention back to the people of Israel as they wandered in the desert. God provided for them daily with manna, daily. The importance of that, when we say yes to following Jesus, he doesn't take away all of our problems. If you haven't said yes to following Jesus today, be under no illusion, God isn't promising to take away all of your problems. He is promising to walk with you through the darkest valleys, 
And if you are following Jesus today and feeling disappointed, God, how come you haven't removed this yet? How come you haven't given me everything that I need? Just look at the story of the prodigal son. How did that work for him to get that early inheritance? Here's everything that you could need in one lump sum. Didn't end very well for him. God's heart is to give us our daily bread. I love how Proverbs 38 to 9 says this. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me and give me neither poverty nor riches, but only give me my daily bread. Now listen to this. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of the Lord. When I read this passage immediately, I knew this is one I'm going to have to park on a little bit more this year. I want to learn the secret of daily bread. I want to learn the secret of going to God for my needs and just surrendering and, and giving my heart to him, relying on him. Then there's forgive us our debts. God is our savior. Before a holy God, all of us should cry out, Lord, forgive me. We all need continuous forgiveness from God. And there's good news on that, that there is no limits to how much God is willing to forgive us of. However, it's a very sober warning, and we've been talking about this a lot. Pastor Stephan has been leading us through an incredible sermon series on unforgiveness. And our, we need to be on guard against this. We've just come through the Christmas season, which means you've just been around your family. You've probably got some unforgiveness to deal with. I'm just saying... I'll say it for you. Jesus is saying here, and he emphasizes it. He comes back to it after he's done the Lord's Prayer. He comes back to it again and says, if you refuse to forgive others, then so will I also not forgive you. But we have a God who is Savior. He forgives us of our sins, and he helps us to walk through forgiving others for the wrongs that they've done to us. And then lastly, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God is our deliverer. To be sure, God doesn't lead anyone into sin. However, temptations and trials do come. And remember last time we talked about Jesus in the wilderness? The Holy Spirit isn't the only one interested in leading in our lives. The devil is far too happy to take that role as well and to lead us away from God, to present temptation and entice us to go away from our Father, to come out of the prayer closet we have a God who says, in those circumstances, pray, God, deliver us. So here's the conclusion, because I've gone over time, I think. That's okay. Thanks for your grace in that. Isn't it good to just focus on God's word? Doesn't it just feed you? This is the conclusion. Look at this prayer again in both of its sections. Part one focuses on who God is, and part two focuses on who we are. It's almost like we could classify these sections in, in this way. There's love God, and there's love people. Well, that's something that we pray about a lot here at this church. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command, he re responded in this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So my question is, 
what if the Lord's Prayer shaped our month of prayer and fasting this year? What if you committed to regularly reminding yourself of the essential nutrients that are outlined in the Lord's Prayer? What if we started each day, each prayer time by acknowledging who it is that we're praying to? And what if we focus, what if our focus wasn't on getting the gift, but it was our focus was on the giver? Hallowed be your name. What if our focus wasn't on the glaring need that is in front of us, although it is important, but what if our focus was on the provider, the one who promises us before we even say a word, he knows what we need. I started off this sermon by saying that prayer should not be viewed as a have to, but as a get to. Jesus is inviting us into the most intimate relationship possible. He's inviting us into the secret room, a place of limitless joy, strength, wisdom, provision, a place that people like George Mueller, people like Hudson Taylor, think of whoever it is for you that has inspired you to follow Jesus and Jesus himself have modeled to us. Will you go to the secret place with your father? So we're going to spend now a little bit of time in reflection. I'm going to invite you to stand with me before we get into worship. And if you're comfortable, you can put out your hands in front of you. Jesus, we thank you for the truth that right now we can pray, come Lord Jesus, come fill this room, fill it with your presence. But we also acknowledge, Jesus, that there wasn't a moment that you weren't with us. When we say that, it's not really an acknowledgement of getting you to come someplace you weren't, but for our hearts to wake up to the reality that you are right here with us. Jesus, I pray that as we go into this last song of worship, as we look ahead to a, another year, 2023, God, would you draw us into the secret place? God, is there anything you wanna to say to us in response to these things? Jesus, we love you. And we get to worship you now. In your name I pray. Amen.